We are finishing our series in the book of Daniel. Last nine weeks, we've been talking about Daniel. Next week, we'll start a brand new four-week series kind of leading up to Christmas, um, three weeks before then the Christmas Eve service. And so I kind of want to bring to a conclusion, we're not going to get all the way through Daniel. Maybe next year sometime we'll come back and address the back half of Daniel. But for nine weeks now, we've been in the book of Daniel. And last thing, before I forget, um, if you are here this morning in, you know, we've, I don't know, the last six weeks now, we've been passing out these fill-ins um, for those in the outline, for those of you like me who have really short attention span. Um, if you want a fill-in and you didn't get one, the guys, there's three guys that are in the back, you can raise your hand. And uh, these guys will be pass, happy to pass these out. So just raise your hand real high over here if there's anybody over here. Raise your hands real high. There's nine fill-ins this morning. This helps me stay focused and hopefully help you stay focused. If it distracts you, then don't take one. That's the whole point. It's not that you're distracted. Okay. So we're finishing up this series on Daniel this morning. And I want to give you a little bit of an overview um, and I want to talk about why the book of Daniel is so important and what we can learn. Again, this is just an overview. As we step back, we've been spending nine weeks in Daniel. And there's lots of lessons, right, that we can learn. But there's two primary things that I want you, as part of North Point, under my spiritual responsibility that God has placed upon me. There's two things in particular I want you to take home as an overview of the book of Daniel. Okay? And I'm going to go a little bit quicker this morning just because of time. So two things. Number one, primary takeaway. I want you to always remember when you look at Daniel that all throughout the book of Daniel, you see this theme that God is sovereign, that God is in control of every detail that goes on in our world. God's sovereign. He's control. And not only is he in control, but God is intimately involved in the affairs of the world. And God is involved in the affairs of your life. Like God knows you, God sees you. You might not think God's interested, but God is involved in the grand scheme of things, the big picture of the affairs of this world. He's in control and God is involved in the details of your life. We see this all throughout scripture. Daniel chapter one, verse two, the very opening lines of the book of Daniel, we see this. God is speaking of a foreign king. You all know the story. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. It says the Lord gave him, this foreign king, victory over the king Jehoiakim, who was a Jewish and an Israelite king, right? God gave this foreign king victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah, and he permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. We see this. The Lord gave him victory. God is in control. All throughout the book of Daniel, we can read passage after passage. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Again, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar is having this dream about all these. He doesn't know exactly what the dream represents. And Daniel tells him, and Daniel says to him, For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is a command by the holy ones. So that everyone may know that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. God gives the kingdoms of the world to anyone he chooses even to the lowliest of people. And I was so thankful that we decided way back in the summer to do this study at this time of the year. Because, you know, we don't have to worry about the elections. I know a lot of you guys post on Facebook like, hey, you know, God's in control. I don't have to worry about whether Trump gets reelected or I don't have to worry about whether Biden gets elected. Because God's in control. And I just get to play my part in choosing whom I vote for. But God is ultimately the one who's in control. He gives the kingdoms of the world to whomever he chooses. God's sovereign. Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. Most likely Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. 
you know, he, he sees us writing on the wall. You guys, I can't explain it all right now. Hopefully you've been following along. This is what Daniel says to him. You have not honored the God who, contro- who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Like we see this theme time and time again all throughout the book of Daniel, that God's sovereign, that God is in control. We don't have to be concerned about that or worried. Now he's God in control, but we read passages like Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, that God is intimately involved in my life, in your life. God is intimately involved in the affairs of the lives of people around him. We know the story about Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they get thrown into a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, because they won't bow down and worship this idol. And we see that Nebuchadnezzar says, I threw three men into the fire, but now I look in and they're unbound. I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Like in the middle of a crisis in my life, I might not recognize or feel like, but God is there and he is present and God is involved. We see this all throughout Daniel. We see it when Daniel's thrown into a lion's den later on in Daniel chapter 6, verse 21 and 22. You know, Daniel says, you know, God is the one who shut the mouths of these lions. They would not devour me. Like Daniel acknowledges he knows that God is involved in his life and that God is working. So we learn when we read Daniel, we reflect God is sovereign. God is in control. He's in control of the kingdoms of the world. And God is involved in my life. Secondly, the second lesson I want you to learn, you know, when I think about Daniel and what separated Daniel and his friends from everybody else, what separated them from everyone else is that they lived their lives by convictions. And we need to talk about that this morning. I think that today most Christians don't live their lives by their convictions. They have preferences, they have opinions, but they really don't have convictions. They're not really too sure. What am I absolutely convinced of that I believe based upon what the Bible says? I have a preference. I have opinions. But do I really have a conviction? Daniel and his friends were willing to die for their convictions. Most of us don't even want to lose money for our convictions. We're like, oh, I'll change my conviction. Well, that's not a conviction. That's just a preference. That's just an opinion that you might have. But what separated Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is that they lived, they not only spoke their convictions, they lived their lives by them. And again, we see this all throughout Daniel. Let me give you a couple passages in particular. Again, the opening lines of Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved. He was convinced. He was convicted. He purposed. He made up in his mind. He determined. Other translations use that, use those different words for resolve. Daniel resolved. He purposed, made up his mind. He was determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that the king drank that he was offering him. Daniel said, if I do this, then I will be defying God and I will actually be sinning. Daniel's like, I would rather my life be taken from me than to sin. He felt a conviction about that. We see in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, 18, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I like to think that if I was faced with a life and death situation, that I would say, oh yeah, I'm not going to bow down and worship these idols. They had a conviction about this. They were convinced that to do what the king was asking would have been sin, and they would rather die than to give in to, those, to, to, the, to the, what the king had asked. We see it again in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel's told that he can't pray. And it says that Daniel went home, he threw open his windows, and he prayed like he always did before. He got down on his knees, and Daniel prayed, even though he was faced with being thrown into the lion's den. Daniel had a conviction. That's what separated Daniel and his friends. That's why we read about Daniel. I wonder if you have convictions. And I wonder what those convictions are. We have a definition for a conviction. I've given to you guys probably early on in the sermon series. A conviction is an immovable belief. Like I'm not going to change no matter what the circumstances or situation is. And this is why Daniel stood strong and why he's recognized. It's an immovable belief based upon the word of God. Being so thoroughly convinced when you think, oh, I have a conviction. I'm convinced about that. Being so thoroughly convinced of its absolute truth that we are willing to take a stand regardless of the consequences. Convictions shape not only what we believe, but also how we live. Did you guys know, don't, don't turn there yet, Jesse. Did you know that, that your convictions are guaranteed and protected under the Constitution of the United States? Did you realize that? That if you have convictions, the Constitution, the First Amendment, go ahead, Jesse, the First Amendment says you are guaranteed protection for your convictions. The First Amendment says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In 1972, a guy named Jonas Yoder, true story, he, um, an Amish guy in Wisconsin, and he pulled his kids out of school after eighth grade. And he said that he felt like to send his kids to school beyond eighth grade would have been a sin because of what they were being taught in the public high school. And he didn't want his kids indoctrinated with what he said would have been immoral teachings and so on and on and on. True story, 1972. You can read about it. Yoder versus Wisconsin. The state of Wisconsin came to him and they said, Mr. Yoder, if you don't put your kids back in school, then we are going to sue you. And he said, it doesn't matter. You can go ahead and sue me. He said, for me to do that would be wrong. It would be sin. And I cannot do that. They took him to court. Guess what? He lost. The state of Wisconsin said, you have to put your kids back into school. He said, I'm sorry. I will not and I cannot do that. I cannot change from this conviction. They said, Mr. Yoder, if you don't do that, not only are we going to sue you, but we're going to take your kids away from you. A lawyer heard about this, said, hey, I'll represent you. They took it to the appeals court. Guess what happened? He lost again. 
They said, Mr. Yoder, if you don't put your kids back in school, no longer are we just going to sue you, and no longer are we just going to take your kids from you, but we are going to put you in jail. He said, it doesn't really matter what you do or what you say. For me to do what you're asking me to do would be sin, and I cannot do that. They said, okay, well, he appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court, I think it was in 1973, ruled in favor of Mr. Yoder based upon the First Amendment of the Constitution. And it's really interesting what the Supreme Court said. The Supreme Court has said a couple things about convictions. And I wonder if they put you on trial. If you were on trial, could you be found with having convictions in your life? Would those convictions be protected? Well, they would if you could prove that you actually had a conviction. Back in 1991, an attorney from Conneaut, Ohio, just a little place up in northeastern Ohio, wrote about this court case. And they found this, that the Supreme Court has said for something to be a conviction, not a preference or not an opinion, there must be three things in particular for you to say you have convictions. Number one, you have to be able to verbalize your beliefs. In other words, you have to say what you believe. This is what I believe. You have to be able to articulate it and verbalize it. Most Christians, they can't. If I asked you, I said, Chip, I'm sure Chip has some, but Chip, do you know what your convictions are? Can you tell me? Why, well, you know, I, I, uh. Oh, you don't have any convictions. You're not like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You can't even tell me what your convictions are. They're not protected. Secondly, they said, now you have to verbalize. You have to have a knowledge of your beliefs. In other words, you have to be able to understand and comprehend your beliefs and articulate what they mean. Why do you believe what, not just what do you believe, but why do you believe what you believe? Can you explain it to me? Can you tell me why you believe what you believe? Mr. Yoder was able to do those two things. Finally, the Supreme Court said, for something to be a conviction that's protected under the Constitution, you have to demonstrate a life of consistency. In other words, your life has to match your lips. Like, oh, they were able to look at Mr. Yoder's life and to see this consistency throughout his life and the way that he had always lived his life. I mean, they examined everything from having a TV to not having a TV. I mean, things like that. They were able to say, oh, yeah, we see consistency in your life, Mr. Yoder. Again, I apologize, there's going to be a lot on the screen. This guy named David Gibbs wrote in 1991, and you can get, I can give you the slides later on. And he said this, the difference between a conviction and a preference, according to the U.S. Supreme Court, is this. A preference is a very strong belief held with great strength. You can give your entire life in a full-time way to the service of a preference. You can also give your entire material wealth in the name of your beliefs. You can also energetically proselytize others to your preferences. You can also want to teach this belief to your children. And the U.S. Supreme Court may still rule that is a preference. A preference is a strong belief, but a belief that you will change under the right circumstances. You may say, oh, I have a conviction. And I say, well, you know what? If you go to jail, would you still have that? Well, no, I'll go ahead. I'll bow down just for a moment. Supreme Court says, you're not protected. That's not a conviction. That's just a preference that you have. The Supreme Court went on to say, David Gibbs wrote, circumstances may demonstrate that you hold a preference 
if such as peer pressure, family pressure, lawsuits, jail, the threat of death would cause you to change. A conviction is a belief that you cannot change. Why? A person believes that their God requires it of them. To do otherwise is a sin. Your preferences aren't protected in the Constitution. Convictions are. Conviction is not something that you discover. It's something that you purpose in your heart. Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3. We see this in the New Testament. We're not going to spend time on it. But even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, Peter and John are talking. The religious leaders said, hey, Peter and John, you guys can't talk about Jesus Christ. They're like, what? We can't disobey God to obey you? You can throw us in jail. You can torture us. You can, you can crucify us. They had a conviction. Real quickly, I want to give you a lens for just a moment here. And I put a chart, and this is going to be really hard to see. I apologize. But this is a little chart. There's four different categories. The, on the, uh, the left-hand side, screen's a little bit off. It says essential, non-essential. Top says the word's essential. Bottom says the word's non-essential. And I'm going to talk for just a moment about personal convictions, personal preferences, biblical convictions, and biblical beliefs. Go ahead to the next slide, Jesse. What's a personal preference? A personal preference? You know, like all the decisions that you make, the opinions that you have, how you feel about things. We all have personal preferences. What do I like and want? And what do I choose? These are not super essential things. But some of you, I mean, how many of you guys are dog people? Raise your hands. How many of you are cat people? Raise your hands, right? Okay, well, we feel sorry for you. But, you know, it doesn't really matter, right? How many of you put the toilet, toilet paper on the front way? Raise your hands. How many of you put it over the back way? Okay, yeah, right? It doesn't really matter. Do you like, do you like uh, country or do you like rap, right? Do you like chocolate or vanilla? Would you rather have a Jeep or would you rather have a Bronco, right? I mean, come on. Except for the, that one's really important. If you're not a Jeep person, then you need to leave our church. So, okay. <laughs> Other than that, right? We all have personal preferences. At the end of the day, those don't really matter. It's personal. It's how I feel, what I want, um, and how I experience things, so on and so forth, right? Go ahead, next slide. We also all have biblical convictions. It says up there, I apologize, it says, true believers in Christ may disagree on biblical beliefs, theological beliefs or systems of belief. We all have biblical beliefs. I would say that they're non-essential. Things like creation. I don't think you're going to be, God's going to keep you out of heaven just because you believe creation was literally six days or it might be six ages. I don't think God's going to keep you out of heaven just because you believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today or they're not for today. Or on the role of women in the church. Should women serve as leaders and elders and pastors or shouldn't they serve as that? Uh, how about should a church be led by a congregation or should they be led by elders? Is Jesus coming back before the tribulation, in the middle of it? You know, those things are not, I don't think that, they're, that they are essential. They're biblical beliefs that you have. But they shouldn't cause division. You're probably choosing a church based upon those things. But they're not, gonna, they're not essential. They're not going to keep you out of heaven. Next slide. Sometimes we all have, it's not sometimes, many of us hopefully have what we say that they're personal convictions. Right? These are personal convictions. How does God want me to live my life in the gray areas that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture? Do you have personal convictions? Like something that God has for you, but he may not have for somebody else. 
You all know that as a pastor, Scripture says that you're supposed to live your life above reproach. And so you all know I talk about this all the time. And some of you all think I'm super silly about it. But this is a rule that I have for my life. It's a conviction I have for my life. And therefore for also the staff, people who serve on staff here. Like I would never go out to dinner or to lunch or have coffee or anything like that with a person of the opposite sex unless it was my spouse and my, or my, my daughter, right, a relative of mine. Because the Bible says live your life above reproach. I just don't think that's appropriate or wise. It's not healthy for me. It doesn't put me in a good position. It doesn't put somebody else in a good position. That's a personal conviction that I have. There's a lot of things like that, right? It's kind of a gray area. I, alcohol, should you or shouldn't you drink alcohol, right? You can see this music, gambling, clothing. Do you wear two pieces when you go to the lake? Or if you're a female, or you only wear one piece. It's your personal conviction, Education, you homeschool, you private school, public school. What is God speaking to you? Politics, are you Republican or are you Democrat? Or maybe you're neither. What is God speaking to you? You know, I had a friend for 15 years. And you all know, I don't hide this. I didn't vote this last election cycle because I didn't, you know, the Bible says to stay away from divisive people. And I've always voted. But I thought politics have gotten way too divisive. And so I chose... I felt like God was speaking to me. Hey, lay that aside. And so I didn't vote because I didn't want to be divisive. We have a lot of people in our church who are Democrats. We have a lot of people in our church who are Republicans. I don't really care what you are, but I didn't want to be a part of any of that stuff. So I chose to withdraw. And I, I know God's in control. I'm not worried about who gets elected president. But do you know that I had a friend for 15 years, when he found out I wasn't voting, he texted me. And he said, hey, I heard you're not voting. I said, yep, that's, that's right. He said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He said, I've lost so much respect for you. That's that. He had a personal conviction, but he tried to place his personal conviction on me. Like, you don't do that to other people. What God's spoken to you, he hasn't necessarily spoken to somebody else. You deal with God, and what is God speaking to you through his word? These are some areas in life that might be a little bit gray, Right? I never grew up drinking alcohol. My parents didn't drink. I don't care if you guys drink, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not super comfortable doing it. So I don't drink. I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody else. On and on and on. Last, last category. Biblical convictions, right? These are, without these biblical truths, Christianity and the ability to glorify God would no longer exist. These are things that all Christians in all places and all times, if you call yourself a Christ follower, you hold dear to these things. It's a conviction. You don't change these things regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the peer pressure, family pressure, on and on and on. For thousands of years, the church historically has said, we believe these things are true, these, these things to be true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, the only way to heaven. Like there's no other way to heaven outside of a relationship with Jesus. That's a conviction that we hold to. Right, the fact that Christ paid, paid the price for our sins on the cross, the belief in the Trinity, the virgin birth, the physical return of Christ, right, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are convictions that we hold true based upon God's word that should never change in our lives. I think that even today, we have to ask ourselves, when I, have, when I feel something of, you know, about a situation, is this a preference of mine? Is it a personal conviction? Is it just a preference of mine? Is it a biblical belief? Or is it a biblical conviction? I think two touchy issues, two sticky issues that 
that historically the church hasn't addressed because it's obvious, I think the sanctity of life is a biblical conviction. Like historically, the church has always believed in the sanctity of life, protecting life. So when we think about an issue like abortion, I think, you know, some people might say, well, that's, that's a personal conviction. I mean, I, you know, as much as I would like to say, yeah, I think, you know, hey, that might be, I think it's a biblical conviction. Like Christians always believe this. We've always believed in protecting life. And to do the opposite would be sin. Now, this is no, this is no shade or this is nothing, you know, when we accept Christ in our life, he forgives us past, present, and future sins. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to, are you saying, Pastor Brad, if your daughter, if she was faced and she got pregnant, she was married, and then she got pregnant, and if the doctor said, hey, if, 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 you don't, if we don't take this baby, then there's a chance she's going to lose her life. I would like, because I've predetermined in my mind, I've thought about this, I've prayed about this. This is what Daniel did. He purposed it in his heart. I would like to believe that I have a conviction. I would say to that doctor, no, I don't think that we should take that child. I trust God with whatever happens. As much as it would kill me, to see something happen to my daughter. That's a conviction. The sanctity of marriage. The Bible talks about marriage. The Bible always talks about, like, why are we talking about this? Because this is what our culture deals with. This is why Daniel stood out. The Bible always, always, always talks about marriage between a man and a woman. Like, that's a biblical marriage. Sex outside of that is, is the Bible calls sin. It's just what the Bible says. Even though our culture might say something different. Those are convictions. That's why Daniel stood out. It doesn't matter what happens in your family. It doesn't matter what happens with your best friends. On and on and on and on. That's what the Bible teaches I am convinced this is God's best for life. And it's anything outside of this is wrong. Real quickly, I want to give you seven questions because there are some areas of life that seem somewhat gray. I'm not really too super sure. The Bible's not super clear on some of these particular issues. The Bible's really clear about some issues, like the sanctity of marriage. Like, it's just, it's just clear consistent, Old and New Testament. But there are some issues in life that the Bible is not as clear about. And I want you to ask seven questions of yourself as you think through these hard things, you think through those four quadrants and think through that as a lens. Ask yourself the following questions on areas that might be gray in your life. Do I need this? This is the principle of extra baggage, right? Do I need this? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, let's strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Do I need this? Another question I ask myself, not only do I need this, is this best for me? If I choose to engage, if I choose to watch this, if I choose to participate in this, not only do I need this, but is this best for me? Principle of expedience, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you say, quote, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I, quote, am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Like, oh, if I know I struggle with alcohol, 
Oh, that's an easy one. Is this best for me? No, I know I'm an alcoholic. I know that I struggle with, I have an addictive personality. It's not only do I need this. This is clearly not best for me. I have an addictive personality. I find that I become a slave to things. Question number three. When I'm dealing with a gray area in my life, is this what Jesus would do? It's the, it's the principle of emulation. I know it sounds corny, but remember the WW, what would Jesus do? You should ask yourself that question. Would Jesus find himself watching this? Would Jesus do this? First John says this, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Oh, man. Number four, if I do this, is this going to help my testimony, my witness to a non-Christian? It's the principle of evangelism, right? Colossians 4 says this, live wisely among those who are not believers. Oh, I got to think about people around me who don't know Jesus? I thought I could just do this for myself. No, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Man, that's a little bit of a bummer. Number five, will this build me up? It's very similar to this will help me. Is this what's best for me? But the principle of edification, the word edify means to build up. So if I choose to participate and again do this and engage this, is this going to help? Is this help? Will this build? Will this strengthen me? Paul says again, First Corinthians, it sounds like a lot like 1 Corinthians 6, but you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything. Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. Sure, you can do that. But is it beneficial? Will it build you up? Two more. Will this honor God? Not just what would Jesus do, but will this honor God, the principle of exaltation? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is God honored by this decision that I'm making? Lastly, number seven. Not just thinking about other people, the principle of evangelism, but what about the principle of example? Will this encourage other believers? Paul says in Romans 14, I didn't take time. Go back. I, I challenge you to read Romans chapter 14 this afternoon. Paul says in Romans 14, decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Whatever decision I'm making in this gray area, the principle of an example, why encourage other people? I think that if you'll take these home and think about them and pray about them this week, as we look at Daniel, this is why I believe Daniel stood out. He was a person of conviction. This is why today we hear about a person like named Jonas Yoder back in 1972 because he was a person of godly conviction. Do you have any? If, if you were to stand before a court today, what they say, oh, I hear what you say, but I don't see anything in your life that says that you really believe that. No wonder you're a lukewarm Christian. There's nothing there. 
I don't see anything in your life. Pagan, non-believers, the courts. Do you want to stand out? Do you want to have conviction? 